The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello, Yoda. Oh, I am so baby Yoda today. You know, I don't actually recall when I first met today's guest, but since that first introduction, he's got a permanent place on my radar screen, not only as an industry colleague, but as a quintessential gentleman and a friend. And included in his resume of years gone by is manager of operations, Reed Heritage Homes, chair of the Canadian Home Builders Association Technical Research Committees and Net Zero Council, a whole bunch of other committees that he's sat on for the National Building Code of Canada. His passion for the industry has come through the University of Toronto Building Science, Architectural and Building Science Technology Programs. And today he's vice president, director of building science for Building Knowledge Canada where he and Gord Cook and their team have, of course, been leading change, not only in Canada, but really across the continent. So welcome to the show, Andy Oding. Hey, glad to be here, Robert and Adam. Andy, you know, your ethos comes through in so many ways, through your passion, your knowledge, and your can-do attitude, more than anybody that I know of in the, in this, in the industry, and not only in terms of the business part, but also in your personal life. You know, you get a sense of that when we see you at the conferences with the family and whatnot. So it's great to have you on the show today. Where do all those valuable personality traits come from, by the way? Tell us your story. I have no idea. No, I was, <laughs> I think like yourselves and many others, you just feel very glad and thankful for good fortune. So I'm from the state of Michigan. I mean, yep, I'm a dually. I'm a U.S. citizen and a Canadian, you know, I grew up as a kid framing houses with my grandpa. I remember eight years old putting vinyl siding on a house and learning to locate the studs at 24 inch on center. You know, I had a grandpa that was a production carpenter in Kansas building tornado resistant homes. So it sort of runs in the family. Grew up in Michigan, little town called Traverse City, Michigan, tried out college just didn't cut it, sort of tried out some other things, ended up back building homes in North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina. You know what Asheville is? It's the home of the Biltmore Estate. It was like the first home that had indoor electricity, had batteries. They actually had a had a humidity control system. Anyways, back in the early 1900s. But yeah, so I was down there building homes, framing homes, and had a construction company and ended up one day, uh, you'll say, where does Canada come in? My wife's from Hamilton. Need I say anymore? (laughs) So I was contacted by a company called Reed's Heritage Homes. At that time, they were one of the largest production builders. This was late 1990s. And ended up coming up in 99, started out in the field, you know, building, constructing, ended up moving into product development, was construction manager, ended up running the operations at the home builder. What a phenomenal team they were. And 
when we're there, I remember being the super in the field, building the houses, the service guy, whatever, quality control manager, and seeing stuff happen. And nobody could tell me why. I had building inspectors and instructors and practitioners telling me what to do, how to do it, but nobody told me why. And it was mind boggling. Anyways, that got me interested during my days at Reeds Heritage. I went back to University of Toronto. At that time, they had the building science uh, curriculum. And I was fortunate enough to actually have John Timisk as an instructor wow. for two years. So here is one of the godfathers of building science, you know, Joe Stebrook's mentor, you know, mentors to so many of us. And we would sit there for hours at the end of the day and he would tell stories of building science. I had him, I had Russell Richmond, we had a number of others, you know, became friends with John Straub and so on and continued as a builder. And we, as a home builder at that time, we built Canada's first LEED certified home. Yahoo! You know, it's 2007. We built the first LEED certified home in Canada as platinum. We're so proud our buttons are popping off our shirt, but we only spent $175,000 in extra <laughs> like that makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, I'm already triggered. <laughs> oh, and then we got into Energy Star and doing some other things. And again, we were upwards close to a thousand units a year. So we were a, a large production builder. And then these strange individuals came across my path. You know, Gord Cook, Tex McLeod, Mark LaLiberté. I was hearing whispers of this Robert Bean guy, Joe Stebrook. And it was just like, okay, this building science thing, what is this? Anyways, needless to say, 2012, after being a builder for 12 years, working with a great team, I made the jump to building knowledge. Gord, just by chance, we had a chat and I'm here with a great team. We've got a team of about 24 individuals, Gord, myself, and a group of partners. And we just have the good fortune of working with almost 250 to 300 different builders across Canada and the U.S. And the premise of our company is it's all about the building science. So that's, that's where we are. <laughs> you know, when you were calling out their names, who are these ethereal people? It's like the Knights of the Round Table, the Knights of Building Science. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes you silence a lot, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I got at the table. I'm, I'm just... Just another, I don't know, grunt. Ah, that's right, man. I've always, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a superpower, I think. So the, the other interesting thing is every dual national Canadian I know, the story starts, when I met this Canadian girl, unless you know, boom. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's Canada's secret recruitment weapon, right? That's right. Totally. That's right. Totally. You know, you said something, Andy, that really resonated with me, and that is we teach industry how to do stuff in fact the building code really is the judge of that isn't it it's the filtration system about how things are getting done but the lack of not teaching the why that is really one of the landmines that we have in the industry you know people are doing stuff all the time putting stuff together never questioning why are we doing this you know that's a huge huge issue and i i know just you know, as I've sort of worked towards the end of my career, that the more that we taught people the why, the better they understood the how, right? And that elevated the quality of not only the design, but the actual assembly of building materials, right? Yeah. I got to tell you, Robert, I remember I'm in charge of quality construction manager at Reed's Heritage, right? 
We've got 13 to 15 site supers. We're doing 800 plus units a year. And I remember we got into this Energy Star, whatever, you know, programs, whatever it is. But the light bulb went off for me the day we had a half day training of building science. So we had Gord Cook come in and Gord starts talking about heat, air, and moisture. And I've got, you know, drywall contractors sitting there with their arms crossed. I've got site supers that have been this longer than I've been breathing. And they've got their arms crossed and their cell phones and their, you know, and all of a sudden, 15 to 20 minutes into the presentation, the arms are uncrossed, they're paying attention, they're listening. And the light bulb went off in my head. This is what they want. They don't know it, but this is what they need and what they want. And Robert, you're right. We had the best scopes of work of any production builder I've ever seen, but we still had quality issues. We had phenomenal contracts. We won Tarion's award, but we still are having issues. The thing that changed it was the day we started to help our team understand why we did it. And all of a sudden, I had now had a team that in the field, regardless of what the scope said, at least they knew the right questions to ask. Knowing the why leads to a mission-driven business culture, right? Bingo. For anyone who's ever thinking of reinventing university education, which really badly needs reinventing, right? A key indicator of a great teacher who needs a pay rise is someone who's got engagement, i.e. arms uncrossed, phones down. If you walk in a room and a teacher's got that going on, Give that person a pay rise immediately. No kidding. No kidding. But anyway, the why is so important because the way I see it at the moment, there's a massive gap in what I call practitioner training, i.e. practically this is how it works in the real world. There's none of that going on. And then you think, okay, well, the fundamentals must teach you why. That's what they teach at university. No, they don't. They just give you this learning by rote, this formula this way, this formula that way. And no one really tells you the story of the why. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing that stuck out to me was I was getting very frustrated as a builder. You know, we would have engineers. Sorry to both of you. My apologies first. But honestly, I really, really, the thing that made me just made my blood boil was we would have engineers come try to solve problems. So we'd have geotech and then we'd have structural and then we'd have whatever. But nobody could tell me about the interaction of all these things. They were so stinking siloed and in the same company. And I remember it's 2005, 2006. I'm seating at U of T in a classroom of 13 individuals. You've got folks from Stantec, Morrison Hirschfield, RDH. There's 13 of us. I'm the only one in the room that's a practitioner. And John Timmis starts to tell us about the history of the master builder. And the light bulbs are going off in my head. I felt like screaming, folks. This is what you need to do. Stop being siloed. Start to understand the interaction of all your specialties. (laughs) And the one positive thing I have seen, and that's why I get so encouraged, is that since that time, early 2000s, you know, we do have colleges now and universities that have degrees in building science. And some people would say, well, that's really nuanced. Well, really, What it is, is it's that missing master builder, you know, the individuals that apprenticed for 50 years before they could ever be a master builder. That's really what it is. And we're seeing little signs of that now. So anyway. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I started actually at the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology in a surveying program. And then I had an epiphany while I was in Hawaii that if I graduated from the surveying program at SAIT, 
that I'd find myself in Northern Canada holding a stick and four feet of snow with no women around. So I, <laughs> so I, I switched to the building construction engineering. But prior to all of that, I was a lot like yourself, Andy. I had a ton of practical experience, you know. I mean, my very first real job was working for a geotechnical engineering company. And I started out in the labs and then I got out into the field and I started doing sampling for concrete, asphalts and soils. And then I ended up as a carpenter framing and just all that kind of stuff. Right. And then I, and I remember, so as I started to go into school and listening to some of these professors who were for the most part, all academics. Right. Yeah. And I'll never forget that one class I actually I was actually invited to leave that day <laughs> because I got into an argument about zero slump concrete, pouring zero slump concrete, right? And I'm looking, I listen to this guy talk about pouring zero slump concrete. I said, you ever tried to pour zero slump concrete? <laughs> it's like a bad cake mix. <laughs> just, it's, yep. like, it's a block, you know? And anyways, I just got irritated by his lack, he's, I could tell he'd never shoveled the stuff before, right? Yeah, that's he was, right. He was shoveling shit in class, but in the real world, he'd never put a shovel into concrete ever. <laughs> yeah. Concrete yeah. farming is all art and hard <laughs> science, in my opinion, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. totally. But anyways, you know, having that practical experience was incredibly valuable going, before going into school. And I, and we'll probably come back to this, actually. I'll probably ask you about this later on towards the end of the, end of the interview. But it really opened up my eyes to the difference between a practitioner and an academic. You need both. You do. Uh, you, you need both. And what I love about, you know, yourself and the crew at Building Knowledge Canada is that you have both. There's lots of people in your organization that have practical experience, but also the academics. And that's what makes you guys so valuable. Yeah, thanks, Robert. No, and that's really what we look for. You know, it's funny, we went through this, one of these visioning sessions, right? This last couple of years, our new vision statement, and we're going to have the big, hairy, audacious goal. And it was interesting watching this for me because we've got a lot of young team members. And, you know, we talked about how we work with clients to reduce energy. And we talked about how we work with clients to reduce carbon. And then, then we solve these indoor air quality issues and we do all this stuff. But it boiled down to, what it finally boiled down to is, whether it's carbon, whether it's energy, whether it's IQ, ultimately, it's about we want to design excellent homes for Canadians to live in. Uh, That's the statement, is it? And that's the statement. And we want to design homes that Canadians love to live in. And we're going to help our partners do that. We find as a company, it's too easy sometimes to get tunnel vision. So a little history on my part. So I do sit on the Standing Committee for Energy Efficiency for this new tiered energy code. That's another conversation for another day. (laughs) That's a whole nother, that's a series of podcasts. And we know it's, you know, it's probably going to be released the end of this year. There's a lot of discussion around it. I've got a lot of concerns with it. But anyways, I was asked to head up a task force called the Unintended Consequences. And for the lack of a better term, All it was, was it was this task force to identify the building science intersections of a code that it was really just looking at energy and all the other implications if we don't get it right. And it's really concerning. We saw that. And, you know, when I I got to school in 1983, right? So the R2000 program had already been around for a couple of years. And I remember, and again, silo-based, right? So you get architects doing the architecture. You get the enclosure guys doing the enclosure. Yeah, And then you have application of 
what then was basic ventilation systems, but nobody understood the consequences of sealing up a building. And so we ended up with issues, mold issues, odor issues, respiratory issues with the occupants. And the integrated systems and the consequences that you get from not paying attention to this stuff is really important. It's huge. I know yeah. I look I look out ahead and as a building science company, our goal is to help our partners in the industry understand it's fine to plan for more efficiency, but you remember what you're doing to the occupant in the building. The simple thing of high solar gain windows. Why in the world does Canada still have the energy rating index in the stinking building code? That single ability for a window to be called high performance because it lets in lots of BTUs is absolutely ludicrous. Robert, we're doing these net zero projects in Edmonton, MERBs. The largest load is the cooling load. It's double the heating load. And still, we can't get it through the head of the mechanical designers and the passive house consultants. The guys, you're cooking people. You're causing discomfort. This is sort of stupid. You know, let's get rid of the ER rating. Let's look at true U-value. Let's look at things like solar heat gain coefficients. Let's look at things like condensation resistance factor. I had a manufacturer the other day, and of course, they're, you know, passive and net zero, and we make a great product. Great. And it was, you know, window, but they refused to give me the condensation resistant factor on the window. And I can tell you why. They don't want to talk about it. Yeah. It's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. And yet for the builder, as builders, you know what time of year it is. Because two phone calls. You know it's spring because it's, where's my sod? You know it's winter when I've got condensation on the windows. <laughs> this is interesting because residential is like the redheaded stepchild, right? <laughs> no one really cares about it. And the reason is a few reasons. One is the people who buy residential have no power or say in anything. They're actually victims Very limited. of buyers. If you, it's consumer abuse, essentially, but part of that so you, know, you were talking about the master builder. So what's and silos? Silos are a result of an 80s philosophy of go to specialism, stay in your lane, and then manage that as a contractual management process, right? Right. Whereas a master builder is the complete opposite of that. It's about the vertical integration of everything. I think at the moment in residential field, there is a philosophical war going on. There's this sort of tacit in the back of our mind knowledge that the silo system's not working. Mm -hmm. Because the buyer has no power, literally no one gives a shit, right? But the climate issues and the energy issues are starting to sort of bubble up to the top. And that is really necessitating a vertical integration. So Bent Fleiberg, who's the head of project management at uh, Oxford University, he said, imagine what the construction industry would be like if Tesla or Amazon ran it. I'll tell you what it'd be like. It would be vertically integrated immediately. Yeah. Immediately. And all the people you you work with and you think don't know what they're doing would be identified and pushed out immediately. Yeah. So I think residential, more than commercial, is probably going to be the first sector that does that vertical integration. And it'll probably be modular to some degree. But at the moment, you're in this hybrid, sort of like a a consultancy service and then you're working with a builder and then there's maybe an architect if you're lucky and maybe an engineer if you're lucky, right? Right, yeah, that's right. <laughs> How do you vertically integrate that and get yeah. a single line accountability? You yeah. may answer that and solve all our problems to go. Yeah, 
<laughs> no, you're right. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you recall, this was a couple of years ago, Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway actually bought, I think, one of the leading residential software planning programs. Right. And at that time, he made the comment that the reason they were investing in it was because they saw that the residential industry across North America had changed so little for so long that it had to have some disruption at some point. Yeah. And yeah. And here's the thing. They're good people in this industry. You know, it's, it's moms and dads and others that are building hands with their homes. Like there's, there's a pride in construction and ownership, but the problem is, is as we head towards this future of low energy, low carbon, all that kind of thing, it's getting too complex and we can do really stupid things really quickly if we don't use building science. We are seeing the modularization. We're working where the, where the principal consultants for Natural Resources Canada and Canadian Home Builders for these seven net zero projects across Canada. So they're multi-unit residential buildings, affordable net zero projects. And the premise is that they have some sort of modular component. And it's really cool to see. We just had a project there in Saskatchewan, big block residential, come out and call their name. They built these things, they're affordable housing, they're net zero. Just to give you an idea, the air tightness test that they got on these units, the, they did the, the final, is about four times as tight as anything we've seen across Canada. And it, okay. it was wow. it, like, and it's just phenomenal. But again, they're using building science as a base. So little sparks of, I'm going to say, we can see where the industry's headed. To your point, Adam, we can see where it's being driven from. The other thing too, I'll, I'll just say, You can ask any room of builders and building officials and litigation attorneys in Canada and the U.S., what's changing faster, the building codes and programs or the expectation of the consumer? And you know which one they're going to tell you? Expectation of consumer. All day long. Yeah, totally. You know, Robert, you you and I have seen it. Gord have seen it. We are buying $30,000 vehicles that are capable of far more comfort, thermal comfort, everything else than our 500 to a million dollar homes. When, when is the day going to come where, you know, the homeowner calls and says, well, my, my air conditioning, it's cold in the basement and it's not getting the air upstairs. When is the day going to come when they don't have to bend over and manually open and close plastic white things from Home Depot to be comfortable? <laughs> For a million bucks. I know. And you know what the frightening thing is here? Is that the, the, the person that buys the million dollar, or just hang on, that started at a lower level. Let's just say the person that buys the $500,000 house has the same expectation as the person that buys the million dollar house or the $10 million house. Both of you guys know this. I mean, if you go back and you look at your accounts receivables for services that you've rendered to people over the years, and you yeah. find the guy that, or the woman, or the couple that built that monster, you know, twenty thousand square foot custom home, three hundred fifty dollars a square foot cost, right? They're no smarter than the person buying the three hundred thousand dollar condominium, yeah. you know. And their buying decisions are absolutely—I want to use a swear word here—and <laughs> you know, and what ends up happening, and part of it is the industry's issue because there are segments of this industry that want to be the financial advisors for these really rich people. Like I'm going to save you some money and what, and then they go on this list of all the things that they're going to do to save their money. And all those people do is they rub their hands. They're going to go, great. I can up my BMW series. 
you know, like yeah. that's all they're doing. They have a checkbook. It's got a certain amount of money in it. And they're going to allocate that money to the building. And then whatever you save me is going to go for another week vacation wherever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is frustrating. And there's a lot of, there is a lot of inertia in this industry and you can sense the frustration. We work with some really cool folks, you know, all, Robert, you would know them, you know, Doug Terry builders, like, you know, the folks out at Avalon, Chris and, and the team out at Avalon in Alberta. And here's these builders trying to build these better projects and homes, and they're pushing against a tremendous inertia. And again, it's, you know, they're not saying it's anybody's fault. It's just, it's, it's a tough one. But I still feel the thing that's going to drive this is going to be consumer expectations. And I really do feel that the home building industry is in for a massive, massive disruption. You know, I look at what they're doing with things like energy sprung, Right in some of the countries in Europe, the retrofitting programs. You look at the fact that, you know, in Japan, of all places, they have figured out how to build durable structures, you know, manufactured modular housing that uses zero energy and is low carbon. Someone's going to come along and someone's going to hit the American market and it's, it's going to be a big game changer. And it might be a Tesla. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. It's interesting, so because I always think of things sort of like a macro level. So the residential market, is it being pushed by supply chain or pulled by demand? And what you're saying is there is a flip going on slowly but surely, a slow roll from push to pull, right? Yeah. Because yeah. when I'm ever at a design charrette and you have, you know, you have the cost consultant saying, well, we've only got this, and then you've got the, you know, they want the lead gold Tesla. And yeah. I always say, look, let's can we have a conversation here? So if this is going to be first cost base, we're having an air hand unit on the roof because that's what the supply chain is geared up for. That's right. If you want radiant heating and cooling, you've got to pay more. You want a Porsche, you pay more. You want a Chevy, you pay for a Chevy, right? What's interesting about the resi market is the consumer should have a lot of power. And I'm hoping they're waking up, right? Because consumer demand was one of the things that drove cars to better, to being better than they are, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and the lemon law was the big issue in that. That was the that was one of the real things that dropped that made a difference. Right, we need a lemon law for buildings. There have to be consequences for coughing up a bad building. Right, yeah. that means Tarion has to go. The Condo Act has to go. These things are consumer abuse legalized. I mean, kudos to the lobbying that got that thing through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Consumers don't aren't aware of this. Right. They think, oh, Tarion, thank you. Thank you. I know you can't say this. You're in the business, but I'll say it. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> so hard. Just so yeah. for our listeners, because we have a broad audience, Tarion is the Ontario Insurance Home Insurance Organization, but it's it's uh, supposed to be, or that, and they've gone through some changes, but it, it is still government operated, but at an arm's length, if I if I remember correctly, right? Well, you no, know how it really works is right. So you hand a condo over, house or or apartment, right? There's a 12-month liability period where you're politely ignored. Like 12 months of one day, they steer you to Tarion, who completely ignore you. 
That's just Canada. <laughs> yeah. Now we do. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. And even from, uh, you know, working with builders, being a builder in the past, it's really tough. I'll give you the other side of the stick. I spent four days in a legal tribunal where the homeowner had three PhDs, three suitcases full of literature and was pursuing human rights violations against the builder in the industry because we weren't putting enough windows in to allow sunlight through to cleanse their garments. How in the world did that make it into the court system? So the other side of the story, I can't, my brain just wants to leak out my ears. Like I don't get that. Uh, You know, so at some point you're going to have this, you got to hit that balance point, right? I do want to go back to this unintended consequence. I just want to get on my soapbox a little bit. (laughs) I, you know, I've, I've often thought, you know, it'd be awesome to do a series of uh, presentations across Canada in the U S called don't do stupid stuff. And I know, you know, Steve Brooks used this and, you know, Robert, you've been a good one at this, get the industry's attention and have 20 don't do stupid stuff. For the codes, designers, and practitioners, we just continue to see this all day long. And part of it, I'll go back to this idea of the building science, why it's so important is we forget, again, why we do things. I'll give you an example. A lot of sessions that we do these days, we've got building officials, builders, architects, designers, municipal folks, engineers on the training session. And I'll ask them, why are air barriers in the National Building Code of Canada? And the room goes silent. Today, we talk about things like air barriers as if it's all about energy. And the fact is, it ain't. It's not about energy. We discovered, because we build in a cold climate back in the 1980s, that if you decide you want to insulate something, you have to stop the moisture flow. And when you read the building code, it actually explains why it's in there. And I find, to me, those are some of the fundamental things that I feel like we've got to drill into people's heads. And here's the biggest concern I have with that. We have a tiered energy code right now that's about to be released that's encouraging further insulation of building assemblies and everything else that has no mandatory requirements for blower door testing. That's insane. We are about to make one of the biggest building science boondoggles we have made since the day we had the Canadian Housing Improvement Program, the CHIP program, where we threw insulation in attics and destroyed buildings and houses. Even our neighbors south of the border got this right. Yeah. So, and so we didn't. This, I'm just yeah, I'm flabbergasted that that's not even a requirement. That's just insane. Okay, so you've got a committee. Yeah. Obviously, it, that has been brought up within the committee. Obviously, it's been emphasized just how valuable that one test is, not only in terms of evaluating the building, but preventing problems before the project goes into any further construction. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe so, this. Anymore. Yeah. Go back, go back to those good old IRC digest articles yeah. that smart Canadians wrote. It's like yeah. nobody any reads them any longer. So here's the thing. It, it's not the standing committee. This is a direction of the provinces and territories. The standing committee, energy efficiency, has no say in this. This is a province and territory issue. And to me, it's one of the biggest boondoggles we're facing right now. And here's the thing. If the general consumer knew that the codes were actually being designed in such a way that it could allow homes to decay faster than any yeah. homes have built in the past, do you think they'd be upset? Oh, my God. So... 
our listeners need to understand this subject that we're talking about. So what we're talking about is prior to finishing a home that it's depressurized. And through that depressurization process, we can identify leakage in the house. So let me explain some consequences here. So I don't practice anymore, but I'll tell you, I'll give you one or two examples. So we had a fellow engineer who was general contracting his own home. And we, through our proposal stage, said, okay, when it gets to this particular place in time of construction, you should have it tested, you know, with a thermographic camera. So let's depressurize the house, get somebody in there with a camera, and then we'll identify the flaws. And he said, well, you know, we're going to take great care in the building. There won't be any flaws of consequences. And I don't think we're going to do it. So what we're talking here is somebody rejecting an idea, a check, if you will, a quality control check for less than a thousand bucks on a house. that's like one and a half, two million dollars, right? Less it's than not, 500, yeah, less than so it, 400. Yeah. Like it's such a small amount and yet its consequences are huge, right? So, okay. All right. All right, Mr. Engineer, you know, we're, we're colleagues. I'll put my faith in your ability to do quality control check, right? First winter, right? He's got dripping coming out of his ceiling. What happened? He had a big steel beam that was in his ceiling that didn't get insulated, right? So the moisture from his house hits the steel beam, condenses, then melts and starts to drip down all of these support guy, guy wires that he had holding up his staircase, right? So then, all right, okay, he comes back and says, well, all right, we maybe we should have done this task. Some people actually that you know out here to do the, to go afterwards, because now we've got problems, yeah. right? And they found gaps in insulation, leaks in the, in the vapor barrier. It was just like, you know, for, yeah. yeah, like you said, for less than, well, less than four or 500 bucks, but in some cases, it's a little bit more than that. He could have prevented tens of thousands of dollars of repair work. Yeah, yeah but, yeah. but that, he suffered yeah. consequences there, right? Which is as he should. Yeah. When I bought my home in Canada 15 years ago, it was like an old 70s porno set. So we stripped it back to everything <laughs> did it, right? Yeah. I found all vapor barriers broken when they were there. There were whole walls with insulation completely missing. This building's been up 20 years when I bought it, right? So luckily we were doing it, we fixed it. But my God, it was just so bad. And no consequences, right? Builders have long since gone out of business. The people who owned the house before me were paying in like, energy costs and comfort. You know, yeah. this is where housing, because it's delivered at scale and it's delivered in multiples of, if there's an inherent problem in there, it's a compounded problem, right? That's right. right. That's right. And here, so here's another interesting note. Some would say it's because the building industry is pushing back on it. I would say baloney. Right. I would I would call baloney on that, and I think it's the provinces and territories not talking to the building industry. Here's why: Canada's largest home builder air tests every single home in the Greater Toronto area. Right. You know why they do it? It's a quality control thing. Yeah. Go back to Harold Orr, the Saskatchewan home. You know, yeah. the Godfather that Passive House Germany, for goodness sake, says is like a founding member. You know, and yeah. and Energy Star looks to. I mean, it's just good Canadian building science. Back then, they discovered that if you have highly insulated envelopes, you make the outside colder, and you darn well better have an air barrier, or you're going to get condensation in it. And now here we have a code that's going to encourage designers to put more and more insulation in walls. And yet we are actually pulling back on the requirements for air tightness. I can tell you the business I want to be in 
in 5, 10, 15 years. It's going to be building remediation. It's going to be the same groups that have been working on the leaky condo crisis in BC are going to be very busy across Canada. Yeah, why? I just, that is just absolutely mind boggling. Is that water already gone under the bridge? Well, here's the thing, you know, I, I would love to get you and Adam and let's get John Straub and Gord and Tex and all these building science folks, get them on a panel and let's pull, you know, Efficiency Canada even has concerns with this. And let's pull some builders and help the individuals that are apparently pushing this to understand that they're making false assumptions and that we have an industry that's actually ready for this. And if that doesn't make you feel bad enough, it's 27 U.S. states require blower door testing to get occupancy, folks. Aren't we a little better? Oh, Sorry, yeah, I see that as a duty. Yeah, them guys, right? That's, you're absolutely right. That's <laughs> absolutely I'll tell you why. One of the reasons why they're going ahead with this, they're going to say, well, the market hasn't got the capacity to do all these blow door tests. And Baloney. Yeah, yeah, I think it's total BS, but that will be the defense, I promise you. You're right, Adam. I mean, it's already been said, and the reality is it's baloney. I can tell you right now, the Canadian Association of Consulting Energy Advisors all day long it can be done. There's far more than enough in the market. We've got just our team. We're, we're running 8,000 tests a year in some time. The market will adapt. Yeah. Generate exactly. the, demand, the market will meet it, right? That's what yeah. the prime yeah. demand's all about. Well, yeah. But anyways, yeah, it's, it is. It's very frustrating. And again, it's not because there's any bad intentions. I fundamentally believe it's because we have forgotten the building science that smart Canadians figured out 40 to 50 years ago. Yeah, well, you know what? We politically, we, well, we had some changes a few years ago to a political system, and our leader at the time shut down research work to NRC, IRC, and, and CHMNC, right? And so, yeah. and then unfortunately, while that, those programs got shut down, there was a security breach within the databases at NRC, IRC, and so there was a period of time, I think almost five years or four years, where research didn't exist. And any research that was done wasn't accessible. And we got kicked on our ass. I mean, we really did. We just... I see. Yeah. 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 You know, it's interesting. I love talking to some of these building science folks like Pat Holman. I don't know if you know Pat Holman, University of Minnesota. Pat, basically, Pat is the reason behind the state of Minnesota getting rid of vapor barriers below grade. Like, duh, why can't we figure this out in Canada? Here's the interesting thing. Minnesota, five years ago, said, enough. No more poly below grade. And they just did it. And now they've got wonderful basements that are continuously insulated on the outside. I mean, these are climate zones five, six, and seven, very much like Canada. A decrease in warranty issues. People that are actually comfortable. You've got less condensing surfaces. You can live in these basements. And you know what's fascinating? Pat is a fan of Canadian building science. So we've got the science. We just don't have the will to do it. I've got to ask. Welcome to Canada. When I moved here, so I'm I'm a Brit, right? That's what this is. And whilst I'm a Canadian, I'm a Brit. Because I'm not a girl. But But when I moved, no one in the UK has a basement. Nobody. Zero. And the other thing in the UK, if you've got forced air heating and cooling, you're poor. Because that's social housing. That's another story. (laughs) But... For me, I have this goal to build my dream house one day. It'd be like a passive house, like a hoof house, but better. But it will not have a basement because that is a big risk issue. Why not slab on grade, right? The space in Canada, it's not like you're tight for space here, right? <laughs> That's right. That's Why right. Would I have? If I was a, 
a builder at volume. I would not have a basement. There's all risk in the basement. There's risk. There's callback risk. Yeah. There's problems. Just slab yeah. on grade. Boom. Drop that module of bits on it. Out. Yeah. There it's are some reasons for it because, you know, in terms of locating mechanical systems as opposed to in the States where there's a lot of slab on grade. And so what they do is they put their mechanical systems in the attic and that has its own set of consequences, you know. Yeah. You go radiant heating and cool or radiant heating, maybe some DX cooling, depending where you are in Canada, right? And a small HRV, done. You don't yeah. need a big mechanical room. <laughs> it, is, it is a wild thing. You know, Tex McLeod has always said, you know, we spent how many years coming out of the ground, apparently, in some people's opinion, and now we're going back in. So basements, <laughs> there, there's a good conversation on our podcast is residential basements. I mean, so all you do is follow the frost line across North America, and you can pretty well figure out where the basements are. So again, it's about cheap, usable space. Here's the thing. I know as a builder that one of the best margins on an upgrade that you can get is a finished basement. Yeah, Isn't that cool? Why? It's how and, like tax, it's based yeah. on the taxation of property tax, right? Yeah. It's and it's in your tax base. That's right. However, I also know that it's one of the biggest warranty issue areas. And it's an area that, you know, a lot of builders and rightfully so will say, yeah, we've got basements, but we're not going to finish them because there's so many issues. So my take on it and what we did, what I did in the past is, all right, if we're going to finish basements, we're going to do it right. And we're going to tell the homeowners why, and I'm going to have the team understand why. So if you're going to build a living space below grade, take responsibility for it. And there are smart ways to do it. The other thing too, that just makes my teeth grind. I had a conversation this morning. There's courses out there right now that builders can take about building better basements. And there's some good stuff there, but we also get feedback that, well, it doesn't make sense to, let's say, insulate under the slab or continuously because there's no return on investment. Oh, hold on a minute. No, that, no that's like, Latin for we won't get caught. <laughs> yeah. Like I just, so I had this conversation. Of course, my blood pressure is going up. I'm like, anybody with their brain knows that you can never, in your, it's very rarely can you justify return on investment, but it's not the point. When you insulate under that slab, you know, Robert, like you've often said, how would you like to live in a basement where things don't smell because you got rid of the condensing dew points? Oh, yeah. that's, that sounds interesting. Oh, and that you actually were feeling comfortable because the surfaces were warmer. Yep. But anyways, that's a yeah, no, it's, other topic. There's a lot of, <laughs> I think a lot of stuff that goes on in Canada is all about, well, we've always done it that way. That's pretty much what it boils down to. And no return on investment is just Latin for, I don't want to pay for it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, I think the greatest untapped power in the world is aggregate consumer disobedience. Huh. When's the last time you bought a BlackBerry? You know why? Because everyone decided <laughs> on mass BlackBerry suck. Right. At some yeah. point, there's going to be a revolution and people can go, I am not buying this rubbish anymore. Yeah. And then builders will go bust and the new people will come up will respond to the new demand. Yeah. Consumers do not exercise their power no. very well at all. Yeah. Right? That's and the it, we need to get going. And that's a function of story and informational storytelling. You know, there is a better way. Look at Hoofhaus in Germany, right? Yeah. You know, Hoofhaus is like you go there, you can specify your house down to the outlet socket type and design. Yeah. They build it in a factory, come over, you put a slab down, they build it in a week, and it is awesome. Yeah. Where's that? Yeah. 
I agree with you. Here's a good topic. The other side of that is I'm really cautious of hammering the residential industry too hard. There is a side of it where, you know, and I'll just come right and say it. You got the guy in the brown overalls with the clean white shirt and he builds affordable good homes in 36 and a half minutes minus commercial. And of course, anything (laughs) he says apparently is right. And here's the crazy thing. In his attitude towards the industry, he has actually done more of a disservice to the industry than he's been helpful. He's got the building science wrong. And I I, got to tell you, I have been in projects where there have been protocols or inspections based on those programs, and it's scary. And again, it comes back to not having the building science. Yes. You know, it's it's a branding program. So I think we're going to get there someday, but I, I, I like this thought. I like to keep in the back of my mind this little shining ray of hope that I think we're starting to see a turn. And, uh, you know, I'll credit Robert for a lot of the work Robert's done is, you know, he's made a lot of these things understandable for practitioners. That's and that is a incredibly powerful <laughs> ability. So you know? right? He's the, he's, he's like a Jedi Knight in holograph. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for that. You guys, but you know what? There's been so many people ahead of us that have done a great job and, and you know, it was, it was relatively easy. I I think what I did that other people hadn't done yet was I was the integrated stuff and then putting it together with the human physiology and psychology. That probably right. is the only thing I've really contributed to the... No, no, no. Hang on, hang on, hang on, Robert. Own it. You're a stud. <laughs> you're so lot, so lot. You're a change, a force for change for good, right? You've got to own that stuff, man. That's why you're on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is very cool. One of the the things that another thing that I see happening that is it's exciting. And again, there is going to it's a double edged sword is CSA has what's called the TC424, which is the residential side of the standards group. There is a an undertaking right now to develop a guidance document or a guidance tool for the perfect home. Now, if you want to try to get your arms wrapped around something and find out your fingers aren't long enough. Try that one. Perfect home. Oh, that's so simple. Yeah. I love that. And like there was engineers and and whoever else on these committees, it was really hard for them to get their head around this. What like what does this mean? So it's been broken up into groups. I just happen to be chairing the the, um, task force on indoor environmental quality. We've expanded it from IEQ to IEQ, thanks to people like Robert and yourself, right? There's a lot more to this in the air. And I I think that's an effort that I would encourage the industry to keep an eye on because there's some really good people on there. But I become very aware that even in that effort, that there is a good portion of the industry that we're having to pull along. Anyways, yeah. Here's a question. I've always thought the any industry that hasn't really adapted in a long while, is wide open for disruption. See iPhone and BlackBerry, right? Yeah. BlackBerry are king of the hill. They don't want to change anything. They're good as gold. Then one day, out of blue, this Exocet missile comes in, and they're gone in two years, right? Yeah. So I live in hope that at some point that's going to happen to the residential market. Someone's going to come in and go, hang on, this is just crazy town. Yep. Stop doing that. This is how we're going to do it. Do you think that could happen in my lifetime? I think it could. I really do. And like I said, I see these sparks of little things happening. And again, it takes time. It's an industry that has probably some of the most 
<laughs> drag down inertia I've ever seen of any industry, right? But Love you see, that drag down inertia. It, you see these sparks of hope. So you've got, you know, Reza Nassari. He's been beating the drum for 30 years on lean construction with Landmark. And you're starting to see all the work that he did is starting to be used in other places. And now it's being, you know, maybe picked up by healthy building constructors. And now you're seeing building science being talked about. I think to your point, Adam, I think the, the kicker is going to come when the Tesla or Teslas come along and go, okay, we're going to put this all in one. Yeah. But I also think that it has to be somebody that has a, it's going to have to be a group that has a little bit of a respect for the longstanding, I'm going to say inertia of the trades, the contractors, and the industry, because they're going to have to pull some people with them as well, too. They're going to turn it on its head, but they're going to have to pull some with them. The other thing, too, that we are facing, it is a huge deal, is we do not have the base of skilled trades anymore. That will be the driver for change, I think. Oh, it's yeah, it's awful. Sure. The Canadian building officials across Canada have identified, there's been some reports even over the last four to five years I think in Ontario alone, they said something that in the next 10 to 15 years, about 50% of the billing officials were reaching retirement age. So even that industry alone, yeah. you know, where are they? I saw a great article actually just published by, was it the Red Seal or something like that here in Canada that's identified that skilled Red Seal trades are making more than engineers are. Yahoo! That's been a thing I don't My son's trying to join the union and become a Red Seal Electrician, that's is that goal, and I am all on board with that. There you go. Hundred yeah, percent. Just for our listeners, you know, for the parents that are listening, because you know that's that is a big part of the ethos of the of the podcast is, you know, getting young kids to think about their career choices. And I, you know, both of you know this that we collectively know more multi-millionaire tradespeople than we know millionaire lawyers, doctors. You got it. Whatever, you know, and I'm, you know, and if you think about some of the construction projects that you've been on, like, and some of the trades pay more than other trades. And I think about the comparison, say, for example, of plumbing, a German plumber who can charge out easily 180 bucks an hour. Yeah. A good good journeyman contract who's got a good reputation can charge out that kind of cash where somebody else, a carpenter, might make considerably less than that. So there are hierarchies within the trades but even the lowest person on the hierarchy in the trades is still can still make some really good coin the future belongs to artisans and tradesmen it really does in terms of money and prospects yeah Yeah. Yeah. by my time again i'd be a red seal tradesman i promise you that yeah you know and well well, all of us i miss my time on the tools i really do one of the best physical health that i ever had was working on the tools but, and also because I wasn't like a lot of my other colleagues eating and drinking my face. <laughs> there you, go. you know, but it was, a, it was, well, what trades people are, if you really come down to it. And my son introduced me to this term is that they're industrial athletes. I love it. Nice. Isn't that right? cool? Yeah. They're industrial athletes. And, you know, you think about the, the physical exertion that occurs at the trade level on a day-to-day basis. Like if you want, you know, with, with a good attitude, concentration on your own physical and mental health. There are very few occupations that can keep you in such great shape yeah. as somebody that's working on the tools. Yeah, absolutely right. 
Yeah. I got to, I got to tell you a little story on that. So back in the day when we started doing, you know, high efficient homes or whatever there, we had several framing crews. I mean, one site alone, we had 13 framing crews on. That was just wild. You know, like I said, a lot of these guys have been framing longer than I've been breathing. But there is one crew, one uh, framing contract. He was pretty ornery. You know, some get sort of ornery. I was ornery when I was framing houses and it was 32 outside too. Yeah. But I remember we put him through some building science, you know, a half day, twice a year. And all of a sudden, this gentleman was coming up with the best air barrier details we had ever seen. Mm. And you know that the key to it was? He was understanding why he was doing it. And as soon as that was clear in his head, he was figuring out how to do it. And I love that. Like, it's like unleashed potential. Yeah, totally. Adam, I don't remember who it was that we had on. Maybe I'm actually dreaming stuff up because, you know, (laughs) I'm at that age. (laughs) We were talking, we were talking with somebody about lean manufacturing and Deming, you know, and how all of that manufacturing, optimized manufacturing started in the U.S. and then went over to Japan, of course, was brought back over. But one of the key points in that was that people that were on the line could stop the line when they saw a problem, you know, and so it was fixed right then and there. They didn't let the flaw continue its way through and then just compounding the problems. They were given the authority to change on the fly. Absolutely right. The machine that changed the world. Yeah. That's the book. But think yeah. of it this way. This is the power of real quality management. In 1950, Detroit was the richest, most powerful city in the U.S. It was the San Francisco of its day. Fast forward to 2010, it's bankrupt, and it's lost something like 70% of its population, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you know what did that? The Japanese, who were occupied, took the quality management ethos that was taught them by the Americans and went, oh, thanks for that, and yeah. they crushed the American car industry with it. Yeah. And you're talking to me. I'm a Michigander. That's my home state. Right. Yeah. So here's an interesting story. I have family members and friends growing up that I knew who worked in the auto industry. And there was a couple gentlemen that that we knew were acquaintances of. You know what their job was? They were work in the yards. So what would happen is the vehicles would roll off the assembly lines, go out into the yards where there's hundreds of vehicles. And these were crews that were going out to these newly created cars and they were fixing them in the field. Uh-huh. They were fixing because nobody stopped the line. Yeah. That's everything you need to know. Because I talk to my, my kids, you know, two of my kids are American. And I say, can you, San Francisco, you know, is the richest, most powerful place to look and vote, right? What if I told you in 10 or 20 years time, it would be like Detroit? It's halfway there already, right? But my point to my kids is everything changes. Everything you think is set now, 20 years from now, won't be. So I'm trying to get their minds like to look for the wave and be in front of the wave, the Gretzky thing, but be, not be behind. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't move to San Francisco. Work out where the next San Francisco is. Go there, right? Yeah. That's yeah. my message to them. And, but, you know, and I said to them, what was the most powerful San Francisco in the 50s and 60s? The word Detroit did not even enter their head. Right? When I said it, they went, get out of here. It's always been a mess. I said, no, it hasn't. It was the richest, most powerful. It was. They were punching out. There was one factory in Detroit punched out more tanks during the war than the whole of the German work workmark. That's yeah. the power of real industrialization when it's done properly. Yeah. And the Japanese went, hold my beer. I'll take that. I'll make that better. And then we'll see you in about 10 years' time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
You know, on your point about lean too, you know, in the housing industry, I mean, we went through a lean building exercise for three or four years as a builder and it was very helpful. But I think that's a concept too that has yet to really hit the housing industry. You know, there will be some that will manufacture houses. There's going to be some that will manufacture buildings or do cubes or pods or modular but I believe the one that is going to win the game is going to be the one that does understand the principles of lean. And, you know, that's where I say the resin Asaris and some of those, they're getting there. They're starting, they've touched that space. But again, I think the rest of the industry is going to have to come to a real understanding of that before you would see it flip and become that vertically. Just, it's got this vertical Master builder means building science approach, yeah. lean approach. In-house integrated design and delivery and manufacture, right? That's oh, yeah, that's verticalized. That's the formula, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. One day, a builder is going to come forward doing that, and I hope they are going to crush it and capture the market because they would deserve yeah. it if they do that. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, six one two, 460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, are we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> Adam, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep, they're an innovator in smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know, another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Gotta go to sensorsuite.com or call 1 855 773 6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. So, like, this is all really good stuff that we're talking about here. But one of the challenges that we have. You know, that's unlike a lot of other industries is is the fragmentation. Like you take the macro housing industry, whatever the dollar figure that represents in Canada on an annual basis, and you actually then break it down into the micro component. Where's these total monies coming from? And a lot of it is the small builder that still holds on to tradition, dogma, has no transition plan in place. It is. Uh, doesn't take the courses because ultimately they play a role in holding us back. I liked your term dragged out inertia. 
And it I'll, is. I'll it's that. that is those, it's those people that are in all, not always, but a lot of them are dragging out the inertia that is being developed yeah. by people like yourself and the and the people that you're working with. How yeah. do we change those small incremental things that are basically parasitic on the growth of the industry? Yeah, and unfortunately, it's not just the players that drag down the industry in the small scale. Some of those small players then may have a development of several hundred units in a year. So now it's even more impactful. So again, you know me, okay, I'm the optimist. So the cool thing we see is, yeah, that is a huge deal. And it's always been like that. But here's what we see changing. We're starting to see even these smaller builders, the custom side of things, if you will, small developments. We're starting to see where the building science and some of these other things are starting to play a role. And it's the same solutions for them and path forward as it is for the large companies. But again, here's the thing. And here's how we learn. And I'm on myself. You know how I learned as a builder? I did really dumb things. Yeah. And cut your fingers. I mean, uh, there, there are places, fellas, that I drive by and houses that I see that are now 20 years old. And I look at what's happening and I, I feel bad. Uh, Here's the thing. I would love to see our industry someday take it upon themselves to buy back a product that they have built 10 years later and take it apart piece by piece. That would be a great Show me one builder. And I think there are some. I think there's some that would do this. Tear it apart and actually see what happened. Yeah, that, that would be an interesting exercise. When does the industry step up? coast to coast and say, okay, professional development is mandatory. Oh boy. That in order for you to even get a license to be a builder or draw a permit to build a house or renovation, you have to demonstrate that you're part of a professional development program. When does that happen? (laughs) Oh, you're, you're touching on some hot topics. So we are all about it. Building knowledge. We are all about professional development. I'm not going to whether regulated or not, if you want to exist as a company, you're going to have to do it. We've seen that in every other sector. They're called learning organizations. You know, read the book, Good to Great. It's a learning organization. If you're going to survive, you're going to have to learn. And if you're going to keep people on your team, you're going to have to engage them with learning. So I'll just say that for a minute. Let me give you an example. State of Minnesota, just like any other state, you know, warranty issues, residential homes, construction is what it is. It's a cold climate, same issues Canadians see. Doing the same stuff day after day. Some portion of the industry, you know, 5 10% doing some high performance stuff, you know, building good homes, but still nothing happening. I think in the last 10 years, finally, it got to the point where it got bad enough for long enough. And now every practitioner in the residential industry in the state of Minnesota has to have, what, 27, 29 CEUs. So all of a sudden you go to an event in Minnesota. I'm over, Gordon and I are doing training at their big uh, conference up in Duluth. They have her every year. And there's in one room on building science, believe it or not, just building science, you've got 150 to 200 people. And it's the framer. It's the plumber. It's yeah. the builder. It's the contractor. It's the building official. Now go ask them what's happened to the warranty issues in the States. What's happening with customer satisfaction? You know what the answer is. It's getting better, right? Customers are happy, problems are down. Yeah. Builders got to realize that that has probably increased their profitability because the parasitic losses that occurred during warranty claims is huge. Yeah. You know, it's that that weird balance, right? We don't want to be regulated. I resist it myself. I don't like it. It just makes me cringe. 
However, I either got to do it myself or someone's going to make me do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yep. the reason that works is because it's an imposed requirement, right? Yeah. And then what it does, it builds a competence. It takes the competence at an aggregate level up slowly, yeah. surely, right? Now, here's an interesting one. And we are seeing this in the US. We haven't seen it in Canada yet. Tie the insurance rates to the builder performance. Yeah. Insurance like passive aggressive powerful like thing. And I know we work with several clients who take advantage of this. We know that the product we build and deliver for the hope of our own team, our trades, our consumers, our legacy as a builder, we want to do better. And by the way, we can do it more affordably because the product we deliver doesn't cause issues on the liability side. That's a really big deal. And I do think in 10 years, we're going to see something like that. Yeah. You know, Adam, we had a guest on that talked about that. It wasn't dealing with the trade people, the home builders, but it was engineers. Yeah. He was going in and doing remediation work on large buildings, high rises. And we didn't quite get him to pull out names that, but there's a legacy of engineering practices where the product, you know, was less than what it should have been. And it's consistent yeah. within the organizations. And he was talking about that the power of tying in insurance rates into professional practice in the engineering community. And I like that idea. Like, you know what, if you want to, if you want to carry professional liability insurance as an engineering company, every year it's a negotiation based on your past performance. I have a theory. I get frustrated with the conversation about, you know, North America's inability to compete and be innovative. And it's true. We have a real innovation issue in North America, but it's our own fault. And here's the thing. If we don't get innovative, then we're going to be forced to by our own faults or by other people. I'll give you an example. This whole thing, you know, the idea, well, we don't need better mechanical equipment. We don't need better homes and the whole thing about climate change and blah, blah, blah. It's all whatever. Folks, forget about the climate change discussion. In North America, we have lost our innovating edge. We have manufacturers that are still making the same type of mechanical equipment and furnaces they've made for 50 years and they think it's good enough. And their excuse is, well, the public doesn't ask for more. I'm glad Tesla didn't ask that. Yeah. Well, it, what's, you know, Henry Ford, when he was asked about, you know, cars, he said, well, if I had to listen to my customers, they would have said we wanted faster horses, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I can give it's you an excuse. Answer. People don't know what they, what they really need. And that yeah. has been, I agree with you hundred percent, you know, and I've used this analogy before. It's like you get a village of people riding jackasses, donkeys, and that becomes the mode of transportation until the person shows up with a stallion and makes all their jackasses look pretty darn lame, you know? Yeah, that's right. And, and I've got a great example of that, and it's actually based on real academic research at the University of Chicago. So I'm researching for a blog I'm writing at the moment called The Other Fire. So fire typically means financial independence retire early. Huh. In economics, there's another term for fire. It's called finance, insurance, and real estate. So what it is is economies or cultures or countries that value lawyers and financialization products over engineering grow slower by a (laughs) magnitude of countries that value engineering and innovation more. Interesting. Why China and Asia are growing faster than us, right? You think of the Anglo countries like with the financial centers, London, New York, Toronto, that's about financialization. It's not creating anything. It's taking a cut, being a middleman, being a speculator, which is great. But 
yeah. as a managed main management speculator, but the value is not there. Ergo, the economies don't grow. They don't develop. No one's asking for it becomes acceptable as a way to not innovate, right? This, there's some really hard, it's fascinating. I'm associated with my, there's some really hard numbers about this. The reason why I'm grinning, Adam, is because creativity within the financial and economic and legal community has always left crashes behind. You think about the creative housing industry that happened 10 years ago or 15 years ago in the U.S., the creative manipulation of mortgages and financing, that's the result of creative in that world. Creativity in an engineering world is completely different. Well, think yeah. it's also creates longer-term problems because sure it money it attracts people who want to earn money. So if you can get an engineering degree, you've got a numerate degree. You've got a brain. You can't half-ass that, right? Yeah. But that's the same brain that can get a finance degree or an MBA. So there's a joke in London. What's the difference between a chartered financial analyst and a chartered engineer? About 500 grand a year. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And that is a joke with truth behind it. Yeah. So if I've got a brain to get that financial qualification and I actually want money, that's what I'm doing. I'm not building bridges or yeah. buildings. I'm going yeah. and slinging mortgage-backed securities, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, all of us have probably been involved at one point or another with a consultant. Oh, yeah. That comes into a business and reorganizes and does a whole bunch of stuff and then leaves just a shit show in their wake, you know, yeah. <laughs> over and over and over again. And then it's, it's, it's hard to read those stories and to look at the, you know, particularly if it's public companies, right. And you're able to get access to their, their financial statement. And even in my own experience where we had a profitable company that we sold and then all of a sudden that company was loaded up with expenses that came out of head office, not our own expenses, but expenses that were attributed to our operation as they divided the expenses of the mothership to the extent where the company no longer was profitable anymore. And then they ended up, you know, shutting it down. We bought it back for less than 10 cents on the dollar, you know? And it's just like, really, you guys, like you, you do your analysis. Like these are supposed to be smart MBAs, financial guys, right? You know, they got all of the all of the great ideas. They look at companies to buy, they, they assess them and go, okay, well, there's a great profit center there, right? And then they, they proceed to F it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it happens all the time. There is one thing that has always stuck with me, Robert, and I, I find it something you said. I actually have it in a PowerPoint slide. It was a quote from you, and I can't quote it off the top of my head, but I've shared it with a number of people. And I find that we have some clients, some builders that are thinking the same way. And so here was the quote. You talked about the fact that all of the conversation around global warming, carbon, energy, oxide levels just simply clouds the issue at hand, which is why are we still using things like, what was it, industrial grade temperatures Uh, and, and types of technologies to do things that could be done so much easier, exergy. When we were given, we have a God-given ability to be smarter and we owe it to ourselves to do better. Yeah, totally. And what I find is that that type of thinking is resonating with some builders. And I, I see some companies where that resonates with too, that it's not just about what the consumer wants. It's about the fact, you know what? We're smarter than this. Yep. We're not living up to our intellectual capacity. Uh, at that's all. it. 
Yeah. It goes That's back it. to the conversation we had before we went on air, which is it's like dieting, right? You want to lose weight, exercise and stop eating cakes. Very simple. Right? <laughs> it's not a mystery. We all know what to do. That's right. We don't actually want to do it. We want to talk about it and not do it. Yeah. Building houses is exactly the same. We know what we have to do. You've got to put expensive windows in. You've got to build them properly. Nobody wants to pay for it or do it. That's the problem, That's right. right? Yeah. But I'm optimistic that residential, changing the property industry will come from residential because it's the easiest, I say that in loose terms, easiest one to vertically integrate and deliver on. There's going to be a house building version of Tesla that's going to come along. Some entrepreneur is going to look at this mess and go, I'm going to clean that up. And he's going to clean up or she's going to clean up. Good on yeah. him, I say. It would be yeah. interesting to talk about Buffett, you know, what his thoughts are on that because you know, he, I think he, he bought, this is going back a long time ago when they, a roofing supply company, but they started to lease the roofs, you know? And the premise there is that when you, as an offerer of products and services, if you continue to own that product and service and it's leased out over a certain period of time, the quality has to go up because no one wants to be a provider of cheap shit on a lease, fixed lease rate. And then you end up having to keep maintaining the stuff, you know? Yeah. And it was a big company that Buffett bought that did that. And, and I don't remember who. Uh, who I think they were leasing solar panels on roofs as well, right? It was about the, the solar industry. Yeah. So he's, you know, it would be interesting. I mean, he would never talk to us. We're just too. <laughs> oh, you never know. You never know. <laughs> I might take a run at the war and see if he says yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Charlie Munger, his partner, would be interesting too. But I don't know if Charlie gives interviews, but. They are legends. Listen, we're coming up on the hour and we normally, well, we're over the hour, but it's been a great conversation, but we normally finish with a couple of quick fire questions. Okay. So, no phone a friend. Do you want to go? Shall I go, Robert? Do you want to go first? Go yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, quick fire question. Canadian building code, should it be performance-based or prescriptive? Yes or no? I personally feel it should be performance-based. Correct answer. <laughs> You win a car. But it's going to be performance so that we can pull some others along with us. Here's the beauty. Performance is going to help us understand that it's okay. It's not that hard. And then we're going to go to performance in the end. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Aligned. Andy Odin gets asked by a parents group at the local community to address them and to talk to them about the future of the industry for their kids. What does Andy Odin say to the these parents with these kids that are five or six years of age and soon will be 14, 16, 18 and thinking about their future. What do you say to the parents? Well, one of the things I would encourage them to do is to consider the skilled trades. What was it? The athlete, the industrial oh, athlete, industrial athlete, <laughs> uh, because it is changing. The other side of it is to, if it is in the world of engineering or buildings or houses is to principally get your building science under you. Don't think that one specialty is going to be enough, that we're going to live in a connected world in the future. And in the words of my good friend, Robert Bean, remember that you are building homes and buildings that have people in them. Yes. How do your decisions affect them? So understand people and what they need. That might be a bit much for the local PTA. (laughs) You know, Actually, but there's a great mission statement or tagline there. Build for people. Absolutely. Love yeah. that. Okay, look, it was that it's a great interview. Really enjoyed speaking to you. Have you got any pluggables you want to plug? Where can people find you? <laughs> 
don't. No, I don't. I, you know, I would just say to you and to Robert both, this is a long-term job for all of us. I know you guys are probably nicely retired and there's other of us that have several years in front of us, but I think it's always going to be beating the drum to, again, get back to the science, get back to first principles. Don't forget them because people do listen. But the minute we stop confessing our faults and talking about our experiences, good and bad, is the minute that the future generations are going to be making more mistakes. That's uh, good. Well said. Well, well said. said man. Yeah, I'm still old, but I'm still angry. That's the point. I know I had a year too humble to say anything about Building Knowledge Canada and the crew that you have there, but I'm not. When I think about the decades that I've been in the industry all over the continent uh, and in Europe, that there are very few companies like Building Knowledge Canada with the crew that you guys have that are making the changes on a big scale. I mean, there's lots of individuals, you know, within the colleges and the universities across the continent that are doing their share as well. But somehow, well, it's through the vision that you guys have had that you've managed to uh, get yourself out in the front that people are listening to you. And I would encourage our listeners to follow what you do with your training programs and the application of the building science that you guys have done and really leaders in it. So that's my plug for you guys. Yeah. Follow, follow Building Knowledge Canada. You will not uh, go wrong by doing that for sure. Thank you, Robert. That's uh, thank you very much. Yeah, buildingknowledge.ca, I think is what it is, or something like that. I'll put your uh, LinkedIn coordinates and your website in the show notes so people can find you. Very good. Track you down. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you, gentlemen. No, it's been a pleasure. It's been, I love these robust, down to earth roundtable discussions, and, and we need to have more of these as an industry. I think more can be done with some of these conversations than, than just a series of PowerPoints and lectures. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 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 All right, listen, thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed it. Adam, another always inspiring guest. I, you know, as I said, I've known Andy a long time, and I don't actually remember when I met him, but I've always kept him on my radar screen because he's just He's got such passion and enthusiasm and he's willing to share his knowledge and take a leadership role within the residential housing industry and not just in Canada, but on the continent. So he um, made some statements that I love and I, cause I'm always looking, we're, both of us are always looking for, you know, those gems. And one of the ones he talked about was the dragged out inertia, yes. <laughs> and which is so true, you know, because I again, like getting out of school when I did, you know, there was inertia back then, and here we are. So that was in 1983. I got, I went into school. Well, I guess 1980, 1979, something like that. Here we are, 2021. Whatever that, four decades later, and we still have people dragging out stuff that should have long ago been gone. You know, for me, he really is quite alert to the bigger issues, the macro issues, because a lot of resident developers are so in there, like in their immediate living in the moment and not really aware of the bigger issues, right? Mm -hmm. But I I think it completely gets the bigger picture of what needs to happen. And I'm also, residential gets does get a bit of a bad rap. It's always like the one no one really cares about. But it's I think that's where the change will come from eventually for the good, because it's changeable. Way easier to change a residential build than a large skyscraper, right? It's changeable. You could affect change there, and then the compounding of the multiples that come out residential make a big difference, right? You know, so I love that. I love that whole approach. 
I'm sort of hopeful for residential, particularly when I speak to people like Andrew, you know, who, who are on it. Yeah, I agree. You know, as a builder, he thinks about stuff that he's done in the past. Yeah. Reflective about it. You could tell, right, that he's thought about that a lot, you know, looking at things that if they could go back and change the way that they did things yeah. or taking a house that was 20 years old or 30 years old and deconstructing it piece by piece. For a multi-million dollar firm, like one of the big builders, that is not a big cost to do that. You could spin that into a documentary or a YouTube documentary, or even a TV documentary, right? Yeah. As an sure. educational tool, as a promotional tool, that is a great concept. You know, if you're out there, big builder watching it, please do that because that would be so fascinating. So many good things could spin out of that. Yeah. Well, you know, it reminds me of the term the rubble club. Yes. <laughs> and think about if you're a builder or an architect, engineer, if you're still practicing and they've had to destroy one of your buildings. <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> that. Last time I went to London, I walked around and cut the big office buildings I worked on in the 80s were down and rebuilt. I felt quite old. It was I had to go and have a sit down and a coffee. It depressed me a bit. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, what does that say? And, yeah, you know, it's funny. I was back up in Edmonton not too long ago and uh, drove by my very first home. Yeah. And fully expecting it to be, you know, torn down because it was in an area that was under development, redevelopment. And that house was still there. And there was a woman that was sitting on the porch. And I asked her if I could take pictures of it because I wanted to show my kids. And I asked her a bunch of questions about the sculpted plastered ceilings. That was one of the selling features when we bought the house was these beautiful, beautiful sculptured plastered ceilings and the, and the artisan work. We talked about artisans yeah. you know, the trades and she said, Oh yeah, the ceilings are still there. And the wood floor, old wood floors are still there. And because the house, you know, back then the science was not great. The houses obviously weren't, didn't have the capabilities of operating from an energy perspective as they do today. But the materials of construction back then and the skills back then made those houses stand the test of time. Yeah, something persisted there, right? We talked about the ceilings actually for quite some time because that also attracted her to it. And, you know, somebody had to mix that stuff up and trowel it on and make it consistent and artistic and you know they're beautiful 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 old ceilings and you see that when you go into you know old hotels like in chicago for example oh yeah in the palmer house is, is one thing always comes to mind or any of the fairmount chains within canada the old fairmounts the besborough hotel in saskatoon or the one downtown toronto right and the old old plastered stuff and i'm talking about that because andy talked about the base of skilled trades, the diminishing base that has occurred across the continent, both the United States and Canada. And part of that has been our parents and our and our culture pushing kids into more of the, I don't like the term white collar, blue collar, you know, and it, it never actually looked very class-based thing. So yeah, the whole trade thing fascinates me because there's a few things going on at the moment, macro level. Right? One is baby boomers retiring, which means there's a massive transfer of businesses and wealth going on. Sure, yeah. But also, there's a massive skills deficit developing, right? So if you want to make money, be a tradesman. I'd say, look at my eyes, be a tradesman. I would do that in a heartbeat again because the supply demand dynamics are going in your favor, right? When I moved to Canada and we redid this house I'm in right now, so... Again, if you're an Englishman, you can't have this bubblegum ceiling. I need smooth ceilings, right? So yeah. I said, well, get me a plasterer and we'll skin them, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's easy to do. No. So when my contractor stopped laughing and then I <laughs> made him realise I wanted it done and yeah. I wasn't going to let him just put sheetrock up there, yeah. he found me these two, two Portuguese um, plasterers. They must have been about 90. I was terrified they were going to die in my house. <laughs> but they did it, right? They were the only people he could find that had the skills to skim and do plastering. Yeah. Now, that was 15 years ago. God knows what our situation's like now. And that's, then you think plumbing, electricians, carpentry, which is artisanal if you do it right, right? Yeah. We're just about framing them, it's all about carpentry, you know, and then plastering, that's a, that is an artistic art, man. There's no two ways around it. Totally. <laughs> so, totally. If you want to make money, listen to me, you should go and get these skills and qualify them and apply them. The yeah. future belongs to artisans. I am convinced of that. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I've often thought in retirement of um, going back and some woodworking yeah. courses and go work for somebody that does fine woodworking, you know? Yeah. And because I am fascinated with just wood in itself as a material of construction, but also just, you know, I play guitar and I find being able to play guitar an incredibly relaxing yeah. element yeah. when i think back in my, my years as a trades it was a very similar feeling that i had you know and so it's because that's one of the benefits of having retirement is that you can have these you know you can go back and do this kind of stuff right i mean my view that the reason that works for you is because it's it's like being a, an artisanal carpenter it's creative it's work and it's satisfying you can work on something you finish it you look at it and think i did that it's not like plugging away a spreadsheet for a day and going home and thinking, what the hell did I just do for last <laughs> I liked his comments and, again, supported 100%, as I know you do, in terms of integrated systems. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. How, how people operate in a world like today without looking at integrated and understanding the value of that is beyond me. It's like, it's like get your freaking head out of the sand. You can't operate in a silo anymore, You and you need – Cross multidisciplinary studies, everything is connected to one thing or another. And when you try to, I must be control freaks that try to keep everybody from playing together. What is it? What is it? In the early 80s, everyone wanted to be a manager, right? And the way contracts are set up in construction, particularly commercial, everything is so like a design and build job is basically 32 trade contracts now together, right? Yeah. There's a silo, then you manage the silo, right? So there's been a generation of this going on. So you're trying to break a whole generation of culture, basically work culture. Yeah. And you're saying, not only do I want to break that culture, I want to go back to something before that culture, which looks backward, but it's not. Right? It's actually progress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's so counterintuitive. You know, this is why as the baby boomers age out and new people come up, that's the real hope here, right? Because there is a real generational shift going on. And yeah. the new blood coming in with the right instructors and mentors, they could affect that change and not be not have, was it, the drink out inertia of the path dependency, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why I'm actually reasonably optimistic. The thing that gives me real optimism is like when I speak to my kids and the fact all the hang-ups and BS I have, they don't have that. They've got their own stuff going on, you know. So I like that because that's change. He also, and I loved his response to my question on professional development, mentor professional development for the trades, and brought up an example of Minnesota, you know, where the industry basically, well, its consumers got fed up and the, and the 
way government responded was, okay, boys and girls, whatever it was, 21 credits a year, CEUs, continuing education units, you got to go to school every year. You got to be sharpening the saw, you know? And as a result of that, the complaints went down. Go figure, you know, like it's not rocket science. Yeah. And that's a great data analysis project there, right? Try and really show that correlation because you probably could demonstrate that quite well, actually. Totally, right? And you know and I know that any time that you can reduce the amount of parasitic losses on your sheets, your financial statements, as a result of not having to service and support something at your own cost. I mean, you know, you bid on a job at a certain margin, right? What you think you're going to, you need, you know, to satisfy your own share value. And every time you have to go back and correct something at your own dime, man, that just eats away at everything that you have been building up. Oh, yeah. It's a a loss financially, it's a loss physically, and it's a loss of reputation, right? It's a triple loss. Loss is all the way around. And so, if you can reduce those parasitic losses through education, then everybody wins. Absolutely. You know, everybody wins. And so lots of upside there. And I'm glad that people like Andy are still around and doing the training and making those leadership changes. And he's a pretty humble guy. And, you know, you gave him the opportunity to plug stuff. He didn't. Because <laughs> that's, that's just who he is. Cool about business, right? Yeah, that's just who he is. And so I'm happy to plug that because plug him and plug Gord and, yeah. and their company and the people that he's, that they get to work with every day because they are just a real great group of people. Yeah. And that says a lot about, you know, the leadership team. You hey, know? Plus, yeah. Cause that's a cultural phenomenon ultimately, right? Yeah. Hey man, it's good. People like Andrew again. This is the whole point, right? People like him. People need to know if he exists. Yep. Need to know that point of view, right? And consider it. Don't have to adopt it. Just think about it. It's all we're asking, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Hey man, that was a good one. So I'll see you on the next one. Always, Adam. Take care, man. Cheers. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.